Shalom, friends. I know we have many others joining us today. Thank you for you, all of you who are prompt and already here and ready to go for this fascinating session. Thank you, Temple Solo, for your partnership today on this important topic, the Jews Indian Colonialism, Pluralism, and Belonging in America with Professor David S. Kaufman, who received his PhD from NYU in 2011, who is a cultural and social historian of Canadian and U.S. Jewries. He holds the J. Richard Schiff Chair for the the study of Canadian Jewry, and is an associate professor in the Department of History at York University, where he teaches courses on Canadian Jewish history, religion in American life, the meanings of money, genealogy as history, and modern anti-Semitism. He earned master's degrees in anthropology, University of Toronto, public administration from Wagner School of Public Service, NYU, and Hebrew and Judaic studies at NYU, and held an SSHRC postdoctoral fellowship in the Department of History at the University of Toronto. His first monograph, The Jews Indian, Colonialism, Pluralism, and Belonging in America, our topic today, was uh, published by Rutgers University Press in 2019, was the winner of a 2020 Association for Jewish Studies Jordan Schnitzer Book Award, Mazel Tov, and runner up for the Saul Viner Book Award of the American Jewish Historical Society. Explores the American Jewish encounter with Native America in the 19th and 20th centuries. His published work has appeared in several volumes of collected essays and in journals, including the Journal of American Ethnic History, the Journal of Jewish Education, Contemporary Jewry, American Jewish History, and the Journal of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. His newest book project, uh, we'll have to have him back for this one, an edited volume entitled No Better Home, Jews, Canada, and the Sense of Belonging, was published by the University of Toronto Press, Toronto Press in early 2021. He serves as the Associate Director of York University's Israel and Golda Kajitsky's Center for Jewish Studies and is the Editor-in-Chief of the journal Canadian Jewish Studies, Etude Juif Canadienne. Um, it is a delight to be here with Professor Kaufman. I knew him in the Wexner Graduate, uh, the Graduate Fellowship Program and have always enjoyed learning from him. It's also worth noting that here, as part of our Valley Beit Midrash, our Jews for Justice program is in deep dialogue work with Native communities. I also see Emily, who's on here, who's a member of our community, who is both Jewish and Native. Um, and uh, so this is a big part of our work intellectually and in our social activism. Professor Kaufman, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for that uh, thorough introduction, Rabbi Shmuley. It's really nice to be here. Uh, thank you, Pam, for helping all the organizing. Uh, and thank you all, of course, for coming as well. Um, it's land around the Great Lakes, which is um, uh, land that's covered under the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Treaty Covenant, which was an agreement to peaceably share the land and the resources around the Great Lakes. Um, and uh, I suppose you might be in lots of other places, not just in the Phoenix suburbs there. So, you know, it would be smart at some point for you to have a look at part of the rich, diverse, and probably troubling part of my plan today is to uh, go through some of the major themes of uh, the, of the history of Jewish encounters with native people. Um, uh, I'll kind of go through it chronologically, just give some kind of high level interesting highlights. And I've picked some examples specifically from Arizona. It turns out there's a lot uh, in my book. There's probably more than 40 different like little case studies or, or subjects or citations. Um, but what I have to say today is really applies in similar ways to most of the Southwest. Um, and there are some similar overlaps in broader territories in sort of the West, the Mississippi, the American West. Um, 
and depending on the lens we use, some really stark, interesting parallels, not only with the American Jewish encounter with indigenous America, but with an even broader history of modern Jews across the Americas in general, in Canada, in Mexico, in Brazil, in Argentina. Um, I'll, I'll end up sharing a few words about our most recent time period, you know, the last decade and a half of what I see things that are going on in the North American context with Native American and Jewish groups, um, uh, because I want to emphasize that this is not just a history from the past, but one that informs the present and is ongoing. Um, and I'll try to keep it, you know, relatively short so that we have uh, lots of time for, uh, for Q&A and discussion. Um, and that's the plan. So if you can see my screen, can I, can I get a thumb? If you can see my screen, all right. Okay, great. So, so I'm just going to take you through oops, some slides uh, and talk them through and maybe actually get a volunteer reader if someone's willing to do that. Uh, actually, maybe Shmuley, I'll ask you to be our reader since I can't see everyone. Great, sounds good. Screen. So give me, give me a read of this source. Okay, this is by Rabbi Isaac Leeser, What Can Be Done, uh, 1852, Lost Tribes, 1650s to 1890s. The son of the weary foot had been there on the plains where the buffalo's hoof makes the soil ring with his measured tread. Before civilization had ventured to plant her standard by the banks of the silent plot or remote Arkansas, and before the fierce and silent Indian had caused to dread there the advance of the honeybee and the sure following foot of the white intruder. And now behold where you find the men of Jacob. Yes, we tell our readers that here in America, we are destined to act our part on the theater of life. So the, the kind of first real chapter in the history of Jewish and Native American engagements is this very long-standing belief in, in the myth, the falsity that American Indians somehow descended from the lost tribes of Israel or made connections uh, with ancient Israelites or were somehow connected to the biblical narrative. These claims were put forth starting in the middle of the 17th century, and they really lasted, interestingly, like into the very early 20th century, where you'd find popular versions of this claim um, by all kinds of people who had all kinds of reasons to marshal this claim, to think that it was true. And in my read, the most fascinating thing is that this claim made Jews and Native Americans a family of some sort. They made them to one people. And now on the one hand, the, the most important element for the people making this claim, missionaries, uh, theologians, um, social scientists of the 19th century versions of social scientists, were really interested in rooting the biblical narrative in American soil and saying the drama of God's pl cosmic plan for all of humanity is meant to unfold here in America and not in you know, not in the so-called old country, in the biblical land. This is where destiny uh, takes place. And the Jewish response to this claim was mixed bag. There were some Jews who thought that this was clearly hokum and, you know, argued against it. Uh, but there were some Jews, including America's leading Orthodox thinker from the 19th century, Isaac Leeser, and many others, who thought that the claim had some validity. And whenever something... Uh, like a whenever like something was discovered, some stones or inscriptions or something that kind of led claimants to say, oh, 
there's something about this particular Native American tribe that looks like we know we have something that counts as evidence that ties them in some way to the ancient Israelite cult that mostly readers knew about from reading, you know, from reading Nach. Um, uh, you know, it was marshaled as as evidence. So in this, you know, this we have a very excited element, excited uh, source from a newspaper, you know, who's telling his uh, Jewish readership that, yes, we, you know, we Jews have a place in the destiny of America and in the destiny of God's theater of life. Now, you know, the long and the short of this encounter uh, is really that there were many, many refutations of this lost tribe's idea, and yet many, many published, you know, full book versions uh, and many other sorts of popular, uh, popular sources uh, that were produced that marshaled this. So though, though the claim didn't, you know, claim took like 300 years uh, before it, you know, died a good death, but in it, uh, Jews could see themselves and their histories as linked to this uh, Native American experience, uh, which made America a kind of homecoming. America was not one more place of exile, but instead was a place where Jewish destiny might unfold. Um, okay, so there's much to say about this, but this is kind of the, the, first, the first zone. Um, in the next period, which is really where the, the kind of less imaginary history and more of the face-to-face uh, history starts taking place um, when Jewish immigration uh, from Central and Eastern Europe uh, began um, in earnest in larger numbers and when Jews found themselves uh, fanning out into the places uh, uh, in the West um, where of course new lands had been opening up to, um, uh, to settlers. Uh, this is the place where the kind of Jewish um, uh, position with other settler communities uh, where, where more face-to-face -face, uh, encounters with indigenous people had. So um, next source I have for you is an excerpt from an autobiography from a guy named Sam Aaron. Um, um, and Shmuley, let me ask you to read this one as well. Settlement, land, violence, 1840s to 1920s. In those days, all reservations were controlled by the Indian agencies in Washington, DC. Those agencies caused the restlessness of the Indians. Instead of giving them the allotment, they would hold back some of it and the Indian was always in need and therefore committed crimes. He felt he was being cheated of what was due to him. Remembering one occasion years later after five workmen had been killed in a charcoal camp near Fort Houcha, Arizona, Aaron described how two white camp workers killed one of the Redskins, cut his head off and brought it into Charleston, Arizona. I, I took the Indian skull, burned off the flesh and hair sandpapered it and made a beautiful skull. I said, Jim, I have something I want you to do. Climb at the pole and put the Indian skull on it instead of the flag. Wow. So I see you're grimacing and that's the right response to this material. I'm sorry that I didn't offer any trigger warnings, but the next uh, sort of set of discussions, which has to do with Jews as settlers and their engagements that were mostly mediated, uh, engagements with Native American uh, individuals and communities that were, there was some that was about business and there was some ultimately about, um, about the process of set, settlement uh, and the large scale battle for land and the resources of the land. Uh, and in this, you know, big drama of the so-called winning of the West, uh, Jews were of course valued citizens by the state and they participated in both state sponsored violence against 
uh, Native American communities in all of the Indian wars uh, and in, uh, in battles uh, and in retribution, uh, rep retribution mm, sort of missions um, uh, after so-called depredations. And we're kind of part of a, a very uh, large, uh, uh, turbulent several decades of, uh, of violence uh, that was ultimately meant to wrestle land away from native communities, of course, put them on reservations. And what's the historical record uh, sort of describes has lots and lots, you know, dozens, unfortunately, hundreds of uh, cases like these from, that I know from letters and writings and newspapers at the time that Jews uh, participated in this kind of racialized violence uh, and did it with a, a sense that they were fulfilling America's duty uh, in the in the program of Manifest Destiny. Uh, so in this source, I mean, it's obviously uh, quite graphic uh, and vile, but the thing that's maybe worth, um, maybe worth noting is the, 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 the display of, uh, the, of the threat of violence, right? The public uh, performance of uh, gruesome vigilante, you know, land claim. And this notable gesture at the end of the, this Sam Aaron guy uh, wants to do, which is to put this uh, fully on display um, at the top of a flagpole, um, uh, you know, indicating that this land, you know, is is land that belongs to settler, namely white settler communities. And I see it very much uh, that at least in in this period, is sort of turn of the century moment, uh, where Jews were very happy to ally themselves with other white settler communities. So as far as the kind of race politics go, Jews uh, first benefited from the state support. Uh, the state helped police and marshal uh, settler rights uh, over and against those of indigenous people. Uh, and they were willing to kind of commit acts of vigilante violence, which is you know different from, but related to um, episodes where Jews participate in Indian wars as soldiers or officers and that sort of thing. Um, here's another one. I'll just do this one a little quickly. Um, it's an, it's another um, uh, excerpt from a uh, from Isaac Goldberg uh, reflecting on uh, his experiences as a young man in the late twenties. There uh, from forty years earlier, and so he's. En route from Weaver's digging mining camp near La Paz, Arizona to Prescott when he met uh, Colonel Wellesley. And here's where the quote begins, with 50 volunteers, these are vigilantes, all brave citizens returning from the slaughter of a band of Apaches. During the wholesale slaughter of their dusky guests, uh, there's a typo there, each man accordingly took his Indian and made him everlastingly good. This is a, a reference to the uh, oft quoted late 19th century phrase that the only good Indian is a dead Indian. It says this terrible affair was known as Curly Wilsey's Pinnell Treaty, and it resulted in the slaughter of, uh, of 63 um, uh, Apache people who were there, uh, and, and with the loss of but one settler's life, a great deal of valuable property consisting chiefly of buckskins, gun lances, and mezcal was secured by the victors. So just another source of the kind of you know, large scale uh, race war in which Jews participated. And at least in my seeing of these sources, were fairly proud to announce as fellow participants as both Americans and as Jewish Americans as making their Jewish contribution uh, to America. Uh, this sort of um, uh, kind of 
uh, brawny, Western, uh, violent, masculine uh, kind of dimension to settlement, sort of nicely captured in these two images, one with, uh, with these two merchants um, in New Mexico and the Apaches whom they hired to uh, protect their, uh, their shop. Uh, and another one with kind of intergenerational um, uh, uh, alertness to um, uh, to to the need for uh, need for for violent arms. Uh, and one final one, just on this tip um, about William Zeckendorf, who some of you may know is part of the state legislature for Arizona and sometimes considered one of Arizona's sort of founding figures. Anyway, there's a story here, despite his efforts to escape into the mountains after a, uh, an episode in which, uh, in which uh, so there was some attempted theft from his, his store. Um, his memoir describes or the new, a newspaper describing his experience uh, reads that this wild savage, this Indian man who had tried to uh, steal some uh, clothing from his merchant shop. He was uh, quickly surrounded by Mr. Zeckendorf and three of his Mexican companions. The thieving red was forced to submit and did not condescend to stretch himself at ease until after his chest had been traversed by 16 bullets. After shooting one Apache dead, Zeckendorf, back to the quote, feeling somewhat exacerbated by the ignoble means by which the Indians sought to take his life by a rock, could not suffer that Apache to lie there intact. So he just scalped him and returned to town on Tuesday with the trophy swinging at his girdle. It's needless to say that Z, that Z does not belong to the Society of Friends uh, Nonviolence. Uh, still, we admire the quote friendly, this is a play on words as a Society of Friends, uh, the friendly way manner in which he helped this Indian into eternity. So, you know, at the risk of belaboring the point with three sources, that kind of speak to this uh, kind of problem uh, or this uh, place in where uh, Jews fit themselves in to the race war and war for land uh, that um, American settlers with support uh, and endorsement by the state uh, perpetrated through these um, final decades of the 20th century. Uh, there's some interesting cultural material that's made not by Jews in the West where they have face-to-face -face encounters with indigenous people, but is rather made uh, in the East. Uh, and these are by Jews who don't have any actual uh, Western bona fides. They don't see themselves as part of a frontier world. They, they have a very different kind of racial landscape. Most of them are in New York. Uh, but these Jews in the East at the turn of the century and into the 20s and 30s produced this pretty interesting rich body of pop cultural material that references uh, the West and references um, Native American people. And in sometimes like in the chief, Big Chief Dynamite poster that you see here for a song, um, they kind of Indianize their Jewishness. Or in some cases, like later in the famous Mel Brooks movie would put Yiddish into the mouths of the Indian characters that they create. Um, or likewise would put Jewish bodies, Jewish souls into kind of Indian bodies. Uh, and there was a kind of goofy play of shared identity, in some case shared sympathy. Uh, and it's a literature and pop cultural world that has it that Jews can't really make it in the West. They kind of reproduce the tropes of the Jewish Lemiel, you know, of the the man who can't, doesn't really have enough brawny masculinity 
in this kind of make it or break it world of the West to survive. And instead they managed to uh, survive through wit or subterfuge or masquerade. And they kind of klutzily find their way in the West. And how Jews in the East, when they were imagining the West, talk about you know the frontier West is very different from how Jewish communities in the actual West see themselves as participating in who, who they are in this American drama. So I'm going to play you just an excerpt from this song, if I can get this to work. I'm not sure that I can. Anyway, you can look it up if you're interested in hearing what some of this uh, pop music from 1908 sounds like. You can open up another tab on your uh, on your computer and type in I'm a Yiddish Cowboy by Edward Meeker, uh, and you can have a listen to listen to the song. Oops. So as I mentioned, the the if part of the kind of Western Jewish um, uh, reason for encountering Native Americans was partly uh, in order to be part of you know to part part of the land war, uh, which was racialized. The other part was through business, through business encounters. And as you probably know, there were many Jews, especially young male Jews, who kind of got their uh, their their starts their their business legs underneath them by peddling and by fanning out on peddling trade routes throughout um, the West into small towns, mining towns, rural zones. They indeed traded as well um, with, uh, traded to and sometimes with um, um, Native Americans on reservations and in all kinds of, all kinds of sort of in-between zones uh, and brought many people into the world of commodities and of capitalist orbit by being part of a network of, uh, of suppliers of ordinary goods and sometimes what they call fancy goods, things that peddlers could carry in their packs and bring people kind of into the market economy as it was developing in the uh, last two centuries, last two decades of the, 19, of the 20th cent 19th century and the first two decades of the 20th. Um, and here I have, I managed to collect an incredible number of sources about Jews who did business essentially with Native Americans uh, throughout the United States. And this is just uh, one of many uh, images of uh, fur traders uh, with their indigenous suppliers, you know, who managed to uh, acquire, um, acquire products and help circulate them uh, to larger urban centers and indeed get, um, you know, furs uh, to Europe and on an international market as well. Um, this next slide shows a little bit of a slightly different, a kind of um, uh, a niche market, which is particularly interesting to me uh, from the 19th century and the early decades of the 20th century, which is the market for what they call Indian curios. So you see, this is uh, Julius Meyer. Um, he's in uh, Omaha and Omaha, Nebraska is the center for the Plains Indian trade of what they call Indian curios. So this is the market that emerges in the late 19th century for things Indian, for totem poles and for baskets and for headdresses and for moccasins and all the kinds of objects that symbolize Indians to the white buyers who consume them. Now, what's fascinating is that uh, not only, so the center of the plains trade is there in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, but there's also a, nor a Pacific Northwest trade, which is centered in Victoria, British Columbia, and a Southwest trade, which is centered in uh, Santa Fe. And in each of these three cities, 
uh, a large, disproportionately large number of the merchants in this market are Jewish merchants. They uh, sell objects and collections of objects to one another so that they can sell larger kind of pan-American uh, Indian uh, products through mail order, uh, through tourism. And they also end up selling and supplying a lot of the artifacts that make their ways to all of the burgeoning ethnological museums that are uh, built up over the course of the late 19th century, early 20th century, all across North America, and indeed to the collections that are put together on in anthropology and sometimes natural history museums in Europe. Uh, and so they make a kind of interesting living uh, being the middlemen, uh, buying and selling, acquiring and selling um, Indian artifacts um, to, uh, to, to whites in museums, as I say, but also in, you know, just kind of cheaper objects that are suitable for, Amer you know, the American pastime of playing Indian, uh, other objects that are put in um, in middle class homes in the curio cabinet, you know, in Chicago or in New York or in Detroit or anywhere else where uh, where uh, middle class uh, people, Jews included, of course, uh, but not only sold to Jews, would sort of display their worldliness by having um, uh, artifacts from around the world uh, on display. This is a, a quote from one of the. Um, one of the uh, catalogs. So, so this is a catalog that kind of um, accompanied the uh, gift shop, as it were, the the, the Indian Curio uh, shop for Landsberg's Free Museum. This was in um, uh, this was in Santa Fe, and the, the text of his advertising material reads: Americans, always comparatively ignorant of their own great nation, traveled Earth over in search of novelties less marvelous than abound in New Mexico. The undersigned has known and been known by the people of New Mexico for 27 years. He's familiar with their country, their customs and their languages. His collectors are, are all the time gathering curios from the remotest parts of the territory where the stranger could not penetrate. Notice the kind of sexual language there. There is no archeological treasure which does not come into his hands from relics from the stone age to implements used by the Aborigines of today. All articles are genuine and it is well known by New Mexican travelers that each article can be bought more cheaply from the Indians themselves. It was part of a kind of elaborate marketing ritual which sometimes involved costume and kind of going Indian uh, that these uh, Jewish curio traders used to help uh, boost and create this kind of market for uh, for things Indian. Okay, I'm gonna pivot quickly now and move us deeper into the 20th century, close to our age, and present a totally different kind of encounter between Jews and Native Americans uh, that begins in these middle decades of the 20th century, um, which is that there are lawyers and activists, there are anthropologists, social scientists, linguists, even some rabbis, who in the years before the American Indian movement arises, before the American Indian civil rights movement itself arises, um, take on what they call Indian uplift, take on Indian social justice work as their own. And they do so fairly explicitly as Jews in some cases, and in some cases very quietly about Jews. But if we pluck out you know, dozens and dozens of people in different states, including Jews who work for the federal government, under the Indian New Deal, under the New Deal administration, as Roosevelt appointments, 
in the uh, in the in the Department of the Interior, they produce and promote probably the most progressive set of federal laws and policies and ideas of, that are most aggressively pro-Indian that America had ever seen up until that date. And one of the 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 heroes of this part of the story is as a lawyer named Felix Cohen. He was the the son of the famous Jewish legal philosopher Morris Raphael Cohen, and Cohen worked basically as like the number two in the Indian New Deal and wrote the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act, which, as I say, was this omnibus bill of very progressive legislation that was pro-Indian legislation. It included the right for tribes to sue the federal government for the first time for damages, for for treaties that were broken and other sorts of damages. Um, he also compiled all the laws from all the states and federal laws that had anything to do with, uh, with Indian affairs and put them together into what's called the American Indian Bible, Indian Law Bible. Uh, it's sort of referred to that way. And it was a kind of go-to for decades and decades, still is used, a kind of go-to resource for lawyers who were uh, involved in uh, in various kinds of justice claims for Native Americans. So he wrote about Indians very widely to Jewish organizations uh, and to the public, more importantly, as well. And in one of the uh, articles that he wrote, we have this, this, this claim that Felix Cohen says, we have a vital concern with Indian self-government because the Native American is to America what the Jew was to the Russian czars and Hitler's Germany. For us, the Indian tribe is the miner's canary. And when it flutters and droops, we know that the poison gases of intolerance threaten all other minorities in the land, in our land. So Cohen and a whole cohort of Jewish advocates are really pushing Americans uh, as Americans to live to a better standard for America. And you'll see this like, couldn't be a more dramatic pivot from some of the sources that we were seeing just the decade before in the West, um, where Jews were very eager to participate in the so-called winning of the West. Uh, in this kind of violent race war. Um, next, uh, and in a kind of similar vein, this is a, uh, a quote from, um, uh, from an anthropologist named David Goldman Mendelbaum. So this is a guy, like many, many anthropologists of his generation who train, um, the, uh, train as anthropologists um, by studying American Indian communities um, they do this principally on, at Columbia and at Yale uh, under other Jewish anthropologists who pioneer the discipline, Franz Boas, Edward Sapir, Leslie Spear, uh, and this sort of second generation of anthropologists, many, many, many of them Jews, uh, devote much of their career, their scholarly consideration, and even some of their on-the-side activist work um, to advance both Jewish and Native American causes through the 1930s and 40s and 50s. So Mandelbaum did uh, field work actually in Arizona with the San Carlos Apache. He also did some work at the Plains Cree. And later in the, in the 30s and later as well, he also um, did ethnological, ethnographic work uh, among Jews, including Jews of Urbana um, in, uh, in uh, where is Urbana, in Connecticut, uh, and eventually became well known for his anthropological studies about Jews in India, the Kola and Cochin Jews of India. Um, and in this quote, you see one of the uh, kind of explicit, you know, pro 
activist kind of uh, anthropology efforts. He says, Apache Indians were beguiled into captivity by, a by the broken word of the American commander as part of a tide of domination that diminished Apache cultural ways, land, dignity. American readers should not be fooled by propaganda that Indians are menacing. Instead, America needs Indians in order to re-America, to restore America. This is one of many uh, such examples we have of Jewish activists, academics, lawyers, um, social justice advocates who uh, help establish some of the uh, intellectual and some of the financial um, uh, philanthropic foundations for promoting American Indian legal affairs and social justice and uplift work uh, before the 1960s. Um, Uh, a brief word about sort of what's been going on in the last couple of decades. Um, there are many, many, many sorts of encounters and engagements that Jewish, uh, not only individuals and scholars, but communities, religious communities, um, cultural communities, JCCs and the like, uh, have been developing. Some of them revolve around seeing parallels in the histories of indigenous and Jewish persecution, uh, genocide, suffering, resistance to suffering, um, uh, you know, resistance and, and resilience. Um, there are all kinds of other um, claims that are being made and efforts to produce rapprochement and other, uh, you know, themes to explore that have to do with environmental solidarity. You know, in the last couple of years, really very recently, we see explicit anti-racist um, activism that's going on together. Uh, but we also see some interesting um, programs and suggestions, uh, some of which involve Israel, some of which don't, about uh, parallels in the history of language revitalization, of looking to uh, Hebrew as a revived indigenous language and thinking about what language revitalization might look like for indigenous groups. And, um, um, uh, and, and then, of course, a discussion about about sovereignty and indigeneity claims, which is, you know, the, the, the kind of itchiest element of contemporary like the last 10 years or 15 years of discussions between and about, uh, you know, Native Americans in Jewish, in the Jewish popular press and discussions about Jews in Indian country and among Indian intellectuals and writers, uh, which is about, you know, how do we compare or do we compare, you know, how do we think about Zionism is it a post-colonial, anti-colonial model? Uh, we can, Indians ought to Jews to see what is successful in which, uh, you know, Zionists have more parallel uh, with, with the history of, of colonialism in North America. And as you might imagine, there's lots of different competing voices in this discourse and it's quite fraught and there's much to say about it. And then the final um, uh, element, which is perhaps something like what I'm doing here, which is some kind of uh, uh, educative effort of Jews, maybe not, I don't, of Jews sort of thinking about the Jewish involvement in American and Canadian and colonial history and trying to come to terms or start wrapping people's heads around what it means to recognize a Jews place in in, a, in settler states. So there are some young activist groups that are kind of doing this work. And I suppose I see what I'm doing as 
lending something historical to that conversation, although people can use it in whatever way by uh, having tapped a historical body, an archival body of sources and just bringing to light uh, the simple fact that there was an encounter, there has been a, a steady encounter for all of American and Canadian history uh, in which there is some interaction between uh, Jews and indigenous people. Now, this is worth paying attention to uh, to learn and understand more about Jewish history, uh, if not how to participate and think through other questions about what it means to uh, be an American uh, and perhaps an ally these days. Okay, um, I'll leave my, my email up here for a moment in case you wanna to write to me at some point, I'm happy to, uh, to, to, to speak with you and continue on the dialogue, but I think we should have a good chunk of time to, uh, to have a discussion here to which I'm very much looking amazing, forward. Amazing, amazing, thank you so much. Professor Kaufman, if it's okay with you, what I would like to do is um, uh, receive a number of questions at once so we can get a bunch of voices in the room and then you can just take a few notes and reply uh, together, does that work for you? That's perfect. Okay, so terrific. You, yeah, you can do the uh, you can do the curating here. Okay, friends, if you post in the chat, I will read it aloud. Or if you want to unmute yourself and ask a question now, you are welcome to do so. Hi, thank you. This is Rabbi Avi Rosenfeld from uh, Seattle, Washington. Uh, thank you for the presentation. Just on the on the pulp culture side, I was wondering where you would place Little Big Man, the film, in this sort of discussion. I don't know to what degree beyond Dustin Hoffman's uh, involvement, there were Jews that were involved in that production. But uh, just curious to hear your sort of assessment of. I know for me, growing up, that was a huge part of what uh, of my education about. Uh, what was different about cowboys and Indians and what the real experience, or at least the Hollywood's perceived ex real experience was for uh, Native people? It's a great question. I don't know much about the background, about how this film came to be and uh, and what, you know, what Dustin Hoffman's involvement was in it. So that would actually be quite interesting. But what I can say is that there, you know, so obviously there's a, there's a, you know, a, a large Jewish element to Hollywood production uh, and to screenwriting. And there has been no study of, you know, of kind of what the Jewish encounter with Indians through screen looks like and what kinds of messages were being, you know, like how the tides, I mean, there's a study of Indians on film and how, you know, when when these films started becoming slightly more realistic or something like that. Um, but I don't think anyone's actually bothered to sort of think about how Jewishness factored into this conversation. Uh, there were certainly Jews that were asked to serve as as stand-ins, as a uh, you know, as as extras and as doubles playing indigenous roles, um, and I guess I would say that the film world should probably be in dialogue with another Jewish world that was not meant so much for mass popular uh, consumption, but compared to uh, cultural products that were made for Jewish consumption. I'm talking about uh, literature, poetry, comedy. Um, for Jewish audiences. Um, there is a book that um, dealt with a little bit of this. It's called Members of the Tribe, uh, Native Americans and the Jewish Imagination by uh, uh, a literary historian named Rachel Rubenstein. It's a little more, deals a little more highbrow literature and not pop stuff, but I think there is where to go there. Uh, and I think it would be interesting to look at specific case studies. You know, there, there, there's, there's the literature stuff is, has been written about a tiny bit more, but the film is 
pretty it's pretty open. Great. We have a question here from Love Wallace, who says, in your research, have you found the crossovers connections to be similar or different between Jews in the US and Jews in Canada? Uh, so this question is about specifically about like Jewish encounters with indigenous people in Canada and indigenous and Jewish encounters with Native Americans in the United States. I'll, I'll, I'll assume that that's the question, not about Canada and the United States Jewries in general. I'm happy to answer that second question, but specifically with regards to indigenous encounters, I'd say on the top level, it's a pretty similar story. This is really a continental wide story. And although I haven't fleshed out all the research, I think that it's probably a hemispheric story and perhaps even a story where there are really interesting notable parallels between how Jews uh, who are immigrants to um, uh, other places where, you know, where there are colonial, you know, colonial worlds like in Australia and New Zealand and South Africa, um, you might find really similar stories of Jewish indigenous connections there. And I think this really ought to be seen at that macro scale before we start looking at the differences, it makes more sense to think about these similarities. And I think the reason to do that is if we see, um, if we see Jewish modernity as part and parcel of a process of settlement expansion of, of imperial empires, the British most importantly, but other empires too that fan out to the uh, North American continent and to the global South uh, and Jews come along for this project uh, and play a role often as early movers on the markets, uh, but also as people who are really willing to be agents of these, uh, these colonial enterprises. We see sort of you know, the basic terms of Jewish modernity as being attached to global empires uh, instead of being attached strictly to uh, questions about uh, liberalism and about whether, you know, about citizenship. Because in all these places, in Canada, in the United States, and in Argentina and Australia, Jews are citizens from the get-go. And these are the places where they move uh, when they leave the Austro-Hungarian and the German and all the other empires, the Russian empire, uh, that really transforms Jewish life in the 20th century so much. Great, I'm gonna read one more from the chat and then we'll invite folks to unmute themselves again. Lauren yeah. is asking, is there a Jewish Canadian organization working towards reconciliation with First Nations? Yes, there are many Canadian organizations uh, in uh, Jewish organizations who are uh, sort of doing some of this work. So, some of them, you know, Vea Havta has been doing it for many, many, many years and they have a kind of homeless project. There's some indigenous health initiatives in Northern Ontario that they've been working on. Uh, so there are like some grassroots kind of more humanitarian organizations that have been doing this, uh, but there's also some involvement, more involvement in indigenous rights and reconciliation issues from the, from CJA, the, which is sort of like the AJC of the United States, the Israel and it's called CJA is the Canadian Israel, uh, Canadian Israel, account, Canadian Israel, wait, Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, which is the main kind of federal lobbying organization, as well as Canadian Jewish Congress, which ran for many years. It went under a couple of years ago that did all kinds of partnerships with, uh, with indigenous institutions. And then I just wanna add that there are, you know, many, 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 I would even venture to say at this point, most school boards, Jewish day schools, high schools, um, JCCs, 
Holocaust Education Week programs where there's some element of indigenous Jewish programming that's gone on in the last, it doesn't take in the lion's share of this work, but some discussion where these things happen. So they'll have residential school survivors and Holocaust survivors speak together on a panel or do something like that. So the, the Canadian scene is really um, quite uh, involved, much more involved in the American one. And this is partly because uh, First Nations reconciliation agenda is very much at the top of the national priority list here in Canada, partly because uh, Indigenous people make up the largest uh, racialized minority group, uh, which is different from there in the States where African-Americans make up the largest or, Latin, or, or Latinos make up the largest um, uh, body. So, so, you know, the kind of discussion is considerably more focused on Indigenous issues uh, here in Canada. I, I will send a copy of the presentation, uh, Gail. I was just tinkering with it until we were till we were done, but I will send that uh, through. I'll send I'll send that out when we're done. Great, great. Okay, who else wants to ask a question? I'd like to go. Um, well, you know, my uh, hi, my my. My dad was Pima and Lakota, and uh, and my mom was uh, a French Jew, so I'm also a native Jew in Arizona. And um, I mean, and I'm in France right now, getting ready to go home. But uh, I'm also a culture language teacher uh, on the Salt River Pima uh, Reservation, and um, and history as well. So I teach the 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 reverse view, sort of, when we do history. That uh, sort of what you touched on in your book. Um, that you know, it, it might be a nice idea to to see the the reverse perspective of um, you know seeing a um, kind of like Jewish identity through the eyes of of natives, and we do touch on that quite a bit. But yeah. I, I nailed it because I think uh, I think um, you know my cultures are compatible. I mean, more than anything, uh, you know, there's so many similarities, and. Um, I think what I got out of your your book is that uh, is that what differences uh, culturally there were came from like just the perception of of natives that uh, you know what people believe natives to be um, is is kind of what makes it seem like we're you know different cultures but there are so many similarities that um, that really it's very very compatible I, I think you nailed it I think you got so many so many points that um, that that I, I also, you know, have noticed and, and then some, so thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I was, you know, I think the, the, the best criticism of my book is that it's not a proper dialogue book. The book is really about how Jews, how American Jews encountered native America. And it's not a two way street. It's not about how native Americans thought about engaged with what meaning they brought to their encounters with Jews. Did they, how did they understand Jews? When, in what way, what was, you know, and, and this is definitely a fair criticism of the book. Um, uh, it does not work that I could do and can do, frankly. So, so you know, I, I would be really happy to do this. I certainly did encounter some, um, some sources, which I made an effort to include in the book about what, you know, about, about, uh, you know, about, about a feedback kind of thing. But I think there is, there are a bunch of interesting questions for Native American studies um, that, uh, that are of interest, that are Jewish questions that are of interest, not just about 
the Holocaust and genocide, and not just about sovereignty and you know decolonial about Israel, um, but about you know how different Native American nations understood the categories of the West before you know of the European West uh, as they encountered from their own perspective. So, you know. Jews looked white to most Native Americans with whom they traded and had interactions. And for the most part, it seemed like the categories of either the people or not the people were, you know, based on, you know, is this person going to missionize to us? And of course, Jews did not have a, missionary, a missionizing uh, instinct and did not participate in the very elaborate missionizing experience, missionizing practice that- We didn't uh, either. Yeah. Well, you didn't either, but I mean that that Native Americans didn't wouldn't have seen Jews as a potential missionizing threat. And then the question was really about are they going to be exploitative in business terms or not? And here there's, for the most part, I mean, the Jewish record, um, you know, um, sort of brags about having good business relations. And for the most part, this is probably true, um, probably mostly true. And this is because Jews were sort of forced into marginal economic roles in these in-between places uh, where their financial success was based on their capacity to have long-term relationships that depended on credit. So, you know, you have to be a good, you have to be nice in order to, uh, in order to extend credit relations and have them continue. And even though the margins were very low, it was just kind of petty commerce, uh, they did last for many decades. And these were the economic tools that Jews used as peddlers to build up, you know, the classic um, kind of post trading post shop or later department store that would serve multiple needs for communities um, uh, and, you know, for their sort of consumption needs. Uh, so this was, this was another, you know, way, but, you know, when and how national origins made a difference to Native Americans where the difference between an Irish or Italian or Czech or Jewish white person might have made a difference is not clear. Uh, the religion is a little more clear, um, but, um, you know, but, but not as much. I mean, just want to add one other thing that there's also just a fascinating current that runs through the book and is something that can be uh, explored in greater detail about sex and marriages, other, other you know, sexual and, and, uh, and filial encounters between um, Jews and Native Americans in the 19th century and the 20th century is obviously a lot more. And you know, what does this look like? Uh, I met one graduate student uh, here in Ontario who was starting a PhD, a sociology PhD, uh, studying people who grew up with one indigenous and one Jewish parent and wants to study, you know, what, the, what this means uh, and what it looks like and what are the contours and what are the issues. Uh, she hasn't finished a PhD yet and I haven't seen anything published on this yet, but uh, you're not alone. There are many famous you know, part native, part Jews, and there are many, many, many more people who share this particular hybrid identity. And it's very, it would be very curious to bring more people together and to learn about it and see what, what, what's unique and what are parallel and it's, yeah. Amazing. Do we have any last question? One last question from anyone? This is uh, Rabbi Avi Again, a little bit more of a politically sensitive one. Uh, I have myself and I've heard other use as a way of uh, sort of just kind of putting another perspective on um, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and, and uh, as far as sort of asking uh, people who are 
uh, um, bringing this 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 problem up. Well, how do you feel about living right now on Native American land? Basically, if you're anywhere in in North America, is not this a little bit problematic for you to be telling people, uh, telling Israelis to? I have all this sensitivity when uh, this is really something that. Uh, as and uh, any any non-native person in America is sort of just living their day-to-day -day life in that same situation. Yeah, so I mean, I think I'll just say a broad comment about this, which is that the idea of indigeneity is, you know, is is deployed by many different people in many different ways, and there is a, you know, a, a, an elaborate Jewish conversation. That really happens in you know fits and starts and in scraps here and there, but it can be unearthed if you pull all of the references together from different sorts of sources. Um, then you see Jews who are really using language of indigeneity to support their claims and their visions, their moral and their political visions about what's happening in Israel Palestine, using the language of indigeneity. So it's a political tool. There is, of course, a parallel discussion among Palestinians and their supporters in America and in Canada, where, where the language of indigeneity is also deployed. And there you will also see some difference of opinion. And for the Americans who are neither Jewish nor Palestinian or, or Native American, I mean, everyone's kind of weighing in in the Native American press. You know, there's literally thousands of examples that you will find where they, uh, you know, where there's speech about uh, about decolonization, about uh, sovereignty, about land claims, uh, about indigeneity, um, and they get deployed in many different ways. I would say overall, uh, there's probably more pro-Palestinian voices in the Native American community, but you can find a decent minority voice among Native Americans and Métis and Indigenous people in Canada who. Um, um, you know, who, who, who are kind of pro-Israel in this sense. Uh, and one last interesting point is that there are many Jewish organizations at the kind of high level and at the lower grassroots level that are actively engaging Native American intellectuals and communities and elders um, into this conversation. And in my read, this is an attempt to kind of to struggle with this question, you know, and sort of figure out if and how there are similarities and in what way allyship might be made. Uh, so I'm saying it's kind of in a politically neutral way, just to say that we should think about this, not as something that we can argue facts about, but I see it as a historian. What are the different ways that this language of indigeneity can be deployed for political purposes? And I'm just interested in that because that's a brand new thing. We didn't see that 20 years ago. We certainly didn't see it 50 years ago. And if you connect this current discussion about indigeneity in Israel-Palestine, you see it as yet another mirror through which American Jews have understood themselves as Jews and as Americans by reflecting the through a sort of Native American mirror. And the, the next one that's gonna come in 20 years will surely be different, who knows, so. Beautiful, beautiful. Unfortunately, we need to stop here. I thank you all so much for joining. Thank you, Professor Kaufman for this incredible presentation. I hope you'll check out his book if you haven't yet. Please continue to join us at, at Valley Beat Madrash for continued learning and opportunities to engage together. His email is there. And as Pam wrote, this recording will be accessible on the, on the learning library. And you can email us if you want the slides that uh, Professor Kaufman has, has, uh, has uh, prepared for us. Have a wonderful day and hope to see you all soon. Thank you.